Yesterday, I stood about right here with my daughter and her soon-to-be husband moments away as we shared together in a beautiful wedding ceremony, a beautiful time in which they exchanged their vows of covenant, of marriage covenant with each other. And as we made our entrance, as we prepared, as we gathered here at this point on the stage, I took a moment to invite them to take a, a deep breath, to pause, and to look around and to gather in everything that had, had brought them to this point in their lives, particularly through family as as both Morgan and Timothy had four generations of family that was here, some standing on the platform with them, others in the congregation, uh, to reflect on the importance and value of family, to reflect on the importance and value of the friends that, again, stood with him, the friends in the congregation, the friends from the church, their friends that they'd grown up with, uh, they'd gone to college with, and just to reflect and take a moment to take a deep breath to appreciate and to understand the significance and milestone of this particular moment in their life. This holy moment, a moment set apart in their lives that they'll always remember. And I think the first Sunday of a new year is like that as well for us as a church family. It is an opportunity for us to take a deep breath, if you would, to pause as we come out of the busyness of the Advent and Christmas and, and New Year season, to look back and to reflect, to look forward and to anticipate. And so that's my hope for us today is that we can look at the, the Scripture, that we can take a moment to pause and to reflect on last year, what it means as we would move forward next year. Now next week we'll do the annual sermon, in which we'll be very much focused and specific about where we are in the life of our church and, and the impact of 2020 as, as we look forward to 2021. But today, I want to invite us to briefly reflect on this last year, a difficult year, a, a very difficult year. Last week was, was really a, a synopsis of what 2020 meant for me. I, I had, uh, I, in addition to preparing for a sermon that I recorded on Monday, I also was able to share with uh, Steve Vishenoff and his family as we uh, mourned and celebrated the uh, the eternal life of his wife Denny and then on Wednesday as we gathered or Thursday as we gathered with the Wright family as as Mark lost both his mom and his father uh, his, his his dad died on Christmas uh, morning uh, mom two days later uh, all three of those deaths COVID related um, and that emotion and, and um, experience in the midst of trying to prepare for the joy and the happiness of of a, of a wedding celebration yesterday just it really has has given me a perspective on kind of what what this last year was about and again the hope of new beginnings of new opportunities for us so let's again let's pause 
Um, it's interesting that when I, when I recorded the sermon that's being shared right now online, uh, I used the term that in 2020, COVID had claimed almost 2 million deaths worldwide, 333,000, this was on Monday, 333,000 deaths in the United States. Today that number is 350,000, less than a week later. In Oklahoma on Monday that number was less than 2,400 deaths in Oklahoma. Today that number is over 2,500 deaths, less than just a week, that increase. Certainly COVID has disrupted our lives, our families, our schools, our churches. On top of that, as we've mentioned time and time again, social unrest around politics and racism has, has elevated the stress and anxiety of 2020. We can only pray and hope for a better 2021. There may be some here, but I'm aware of those in our community, especially in our medical community, that have already received their COVID vaccinations. And, and certainly we will be praying and hoping that, that things can go better as that distribution continues over these next weeks and months to try to resume life back to some sense of normalcy. Inauguration Day is set for January 20th, and regardless of which side of the political line you fall upon, I hope that all of us will be praying that a, a, pre, a new president will be able to work peaceably with Congress and to work towards unity and healing across the many divides in our nation. That should certainly be the prayer of all of us. In fact, let's just pause and just offer a prayer for our nation as we begin this year. Father, 2020 was unlike any year that most of us have ever experienced. We thank you for the grace that we've had to get through and to say we've experienced all that 2020 had to offer and we are so hopeful and look forward to a new year we have seen your loving kindness your mercy your love in incredible ways over this last year and now lord we look to new beginnings new opportunities we pray for our nation as things continue to move forward even this week and in a few weeks with the transition of government we pray that that would take place peaceably and father we pray in the large picture of things in our nation that you would bring healing you would bring renewal and revival you would bring healing in all the different places where there is hurt and brokenness and father i pray that your church that you would find your church healthy and able and willing to be a part of that process even in the life of this nation so lord jesus we give this year to you and look forward to seeing your spirit work in new and mighty ways. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we begin each new year here at First Baptist by sharing together in the Lord's Supper. I can't think of a better way for us as a church family to renew our commitment to the Lord individually, but also to renew our commitment to the Lord as a church and to renew our commitment individually to, to our church, to the body of Christ that we're a part of. And by its very nature, the Lord's Supper offers us the opportunity to remember and to give thanks for what Jesus has done for us on the cross, His gift of grace, 
forgiveness, life abundant and eternal. The Lord's Supper also calls us to look into the future. It calls us to renew our faith for today and tomorrow and to proclaim His death until He comes. So as my mind has been on weddings for the last several months and weeks and especially the last couple of days, I think it's appropriate for us to look at one of the great wedding stories of Scripture, the marriage feast at Cana. You see, marriage is one of the great milestones of life. And as Morgan is about to discover, marriage brings with it great changes and new beginnings, but also is one of those key pivotal moments in life that we have the opportunity to step back and take stock in our own lives in order to shape and to nurture a new life for the future. The marriage feast at Cana is the first of the miracles or signs that John uses to identify Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and John is certainly one of my favorite books of the Bible. And, and John is a great writer. And at the end of his book, at the end of his writing in the Gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says this. He says, I have written, I have told you about these different signs. Now, Jesus performed many other signs, but these signs, these seven signs, I have written so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ and that by knowing that He's the Christ and by believing in Him, that you would have eternal life. So today we look at the sign of the marriage feast at Cana. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's been several years ago uh, when you could travel internationally, but uh, we had the opportunity several years ago to uh, take a group from our church to go to the Holy Land. And uh, we went to the uh, marriage chapel, the marriage church at Cana, where history and tradition would tell us this is the spot where this miracle took place. And it was such a beautiful and powerful moment there. Uh, Jim and Judy Spearman renewed their vows. We had a beautiful uh, uh, kind of renewal of vow ceremony for them as they celebrated and marked their 50th anniversary of marriage. And uh, so uh, it was just a special moment for all of us that went and shared that together. So uh, let's read this sign, this miracle. And uh, then I've got some questions for us to look at as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Jesus was from Nazareth, Mary was from Nazareth, Cana wasn't too far away. And so it, it seems natural that there may have been a friendship or a relationship there that, that drew them to Cana, that allowed Mary to, to have a, a key role, a significant role in the life of, of that wedding in that couple. I, don't, I didn't get the idea that, that, that Mary was serving as a marriage planner here and, and an event coordinator. I think she was part of the, uh, the, the celebration, the families that were, were there in that wedding ceremony, yet she had a significant responsibility, as we'll find out. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, we didn't, well, we didn't have any wine at the wedding yesterday, but, but that was a great fear. Is, is we, don't, we don't want to run out of anything. 
We want to make sure as the host inviting our friends and family to come and share in this moment, we want to make sure there's plenty of food and, and cake and, 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 and drink for everyone to enjoy that evening. We didn't want to get word that we had not planned adequately. And, and oh, by the way, we ran out of cake. We ran out of those stuffed jalapenos that were pretty good. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we were good hosts. And so that's what's happened here is that they have run out of wine. And that being the key drink and beverage is that family and friend gathering that, that would take place for more than just a, a few hours, but over a period of, of days. And this was a great embarrassment and even a humiliation, even something that would bring shame upon this family. And it's Mary that here we see that stepping up to to make sure that this need is met so that this, the, the, the family of the bridegroom is not embarrassed and shamed. And Jesus said to her, Woman, it's not, I don't think it's disrespectful. It would be like, ma'am, it, there's, there's lots of things we could talk about in these, these verses. We won't talk about those today. But Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And this idea of hour is all throughout the Gospel of John. And, and when Jesus' hour is, and that's the hour of crucifixion, and he says, My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Interesting that it says the Jewish custom of purification is a reference to the law and to the, the necessity of, of cleansing, of being clean, as you would partake in the, in the ceremony and the, the activities of that time. So it was very important to have those water pots that the stone water pots that were set aside so that people could purify themselves, they could cleanse themselves, they could wash their hands um, as they came in for, um, came in for the ceremony and for the, 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 the festivity, the festival, the, the banquet. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, and here's the parentheses, interesting, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> the head waiter who was supposed to know didn't know where this delicious wine had come from, but the servants did. The the unclean, if you would. They, they knew where the wine came from. They, they knew that Jesus was the, the source of that wine. Remember just a couple of weeks ago or, or as we celebrated the Christmas story and, and we didn't talk about the Magi, but isn't it fascinating that the Magi went to the king of Israel to say, where's the, where's the Messiah? <laughs> and the king didn't know. He didn't even know a Messiah had been born. But the shepherds did. The lowly shepherds. Isn't that fascinating that in the kingdom of God, a lot of times the, the religious leaders and, the, and the, the people that you think would be in the know are the ones that really don't know what God's up to. But the servants do. The people serving, loving, taking care of others, serving the Lord. They know what's going on. 
And that's what happens here. And so the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, John says, this beginning sign, this first sign, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples his new disciples, just John chapter 1, he's calling his disciples to come and follow him. But this sign, this first miracle, John wants us to understand that when Jesus did this miracle, his disciples began believing in him. Here's my question for us this morning. One of my questions for us, why did John, of all the miracles, of all the signs that Jesus did, why was this one the first sign? Why, why the setting of a wedding? And what is the meaning of turning water to, to wine beyond the obvious sign of preventing the bridegroom and his family of, of humiliation and shame for running out of wine at the wedding festival? I think these are important questions for us today. First of all, it's interesting that, let's, let's talk about signs. We talked about signs a couple of weeks ago. Remember, the, the angels came to the shepherds and said, here's the sign for you. You'll find the Savior wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in Bethlehem. John loves a sign, as, as we've already mentioned. Signs for John were indeed miracles that Jesus performed, but they were so much more than, than just a miracle. In John chapter 11, once again, John tells us that these signs manifested the glory of Jesus. In other words, they revealed to all who saw those signs and to all that hear the nature of Jesus as God, as Son of God. So each of these signs points beyond just the event that took place, beyond the miracle to reveal that Jesus is God. And as part of each of these signs and a part of each of these moments of revelation, they also offer us insight, unique insight, into the work of Jesus. So we can ask the question for each sign, and today we ask the question, what does the sign of the marriage feast at Cana reveal to us about Jesus and his mission on earth? Well, first of all, it's interesting that the sign took place on the third day. Now, we know the end of the story, don't we? <laughs> we know that on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, victorious over death, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12. And that covenant ends with this promise. In you, Abraham, in your families, in your line of descent, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So on the third day, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, inaugurating a new covenant of grace and of salvation. So here, I can't help but believe that the third day is a foreshadowing of the resurrection, and it draws our attention to the possibility that something significant is about to happen here in this story. Now we mentioned the covenant of Abraham in Genesis 12. But did you know there's a covenant that was established earlier than Genesis 12? 
It's in Genesis chapter 2, I believe, where marriage is the first covenant established by God. The marriage covenant was inaugurated as part of the fabric of human existence, as part of the fabric of the human creation story. Genesis 2 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to a wife or to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, the marriage covenant of a man and of a woman is the foundational covenant for the life and the well-being of all humans. Thus, the backdrop of the marriage covenant in this story reveals the significance of the sign that Jesus is about to perform, the turning of water to wine. This is not just an act of hospitality, while it certainly is, but rather, this is a sign that reveals that Jesus himself is about to fulfill the old covenant and inaugurate a new covenant, a covenant that will be foundational for all of life, for all people. In the water, Jesus is drawing attention to the old covenant, more specifically, the law, or the Mosaic covenant, which we'll talk about in just a second. In the wine, Jesus is announcing the new covenant, a covenant that fulfills the law and the Abrahamic covenant of blessing to all people. So just as the wine took the place of the water, so too does the new covenant take the place of the old covenant. First of all, the old covenant which certainly is tied in with Abraham and his covenant, but specifically I want to focus on the Mosaic covenant. If you remember the Israelites, they were 400 years in slavery, in bondage, in Egypt when Moses led them out into the desert wilderness at Mount Sinai. 400 years. Imagine your family being in captivity, being in slavery for 400 years. Now, if you look at that as generations, a generation is 40 years. Imagine going back 10 years of generations, 10 generations, excuse me, 10 generations over 400 years. That's all your family would know, was what it's like to live as a slave, what it's like to be oppressed, what it's like to live under the authority of those who would seek to abuse you and, and not even treat you as a human being at times. This is the context in which Moses delivered the people of Israel, the Israelites, into the wilderness to, to Mount Sinai where there God gave them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments upon which they were to build their society. For they didn't know how to live. They didn't know how to, to, to interact with each other. They, they didn't know how to interact with God. And so the Ten Commandments were that foundational revelation from God that taught them how to relate to Him. That taught them how to relate to each other. How to build a society and a nation of people who loved God and served Him. This Ten Commandments, if you'll continue reading in Exodus 20, was inaugurated with burnt offerings and with peace offerings. And when the law was broken, it could only be renewed through additional blood sacrifice. You see, this is the world into which Jesus was born. 
This was the covenant under which everyone was expected to live. But Jesus is doing something different. He's turning water into wine, into a new covenant. So what is this new covenant? It's the covenant of salvation. It's the covenant of eternal life. It's the covenant of new birth. It's the covenant, as Paul said, of now I am a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new to me. It's the covenant of having a renewed mind in Christ Jesus. A covenant of grace and forgiveness received by faith, not by works, not by deeds, not by anything in which we would begin to think that somehow we were able to gain God's favor. This new covenant is the covenant of righteousness, but not a righteousness that we earn or that we achieve, a righteousness that's given to us, given to us on behalf of Jesus Christ by the Father. It is a righteousness that we cannot earn, but rather that God declares over us. A righteousness then that we receive and then a righteousness then that we walk in, that we mature in, that we grow in each and every day. And the more we learn about this new covenant, the more we learn how inadequate that the law was, how inadequate that the old covenant was. Why, even the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 puts into words what we already knew, what we discovered as part of our life experience, that the law is only a shadow a shadow of something better that was to come. Its sacrifices were only meant to be a reminder of our sin. And its sacrifices were totally inadequate for the purpose of taking away our sin, of offering eternal forgiveness, of restoring us into relationship with God. No, the law by its very nature could only anticipate and point us to something much greater. Thus, the changing of water into wine announces the end of the Old Covenant and the birth of the New Covenant. Now certainly the disciples did not understand this in that moment. They saw the miracle and, and they saw that, that Jesus, in Jesus there was a, a power and presence of God that they'd never seen before as His glory was revealed to them. But it's interesting that John, after Jesus' death, as John is trying to understand and to, to put things together, that John comes back to this wedding ceremony, comes back to this experience of wedding covenant, marriage covenant, to reveal to us and to announce to us that in the life and ministry of Jesus, He is fulfilling the old covenant and inaugurating and beginning a new covenant. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Lord's Supper that, that I typically refer to. It's, it's the Lord's Supper that Paul says that he received from the Lord in, in understanding it. And let's read these verses as we prepare ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper. 
For I received from the Lord, Paul says, that which I also delivered to you, I gave to you, I shared with you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. This cup of wine, Jesus changed water to wine. Jesus took us from the old covenant to the new covenant. And here, as the sign, as the symbol in which today we continue to celebrate and recognize the new covenant, it's the cup that Jesus has given to us. The cup that is a sign, the representation of his blood sacrifice to us. It's this cup of the new covenant that we share together. And we do this, Jesus says, as often as we drink it in remembrance of him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's part of the sign of the Lord's Supper, is that when we share and take the Lord's Supper together, we are anticipating and waiting for and proclaiming the truth and reality that Jesus will return one day. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of, a, of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man or a woman and a woman must examine himself, herself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul is telling us how Jesus himself has reinterpreted the Passover meal, which was the meal of the Old Covenant, which was the meal that they were sharing together there in the upper room. And Jesus reinterprets that meal into the Lord's Supper, which is the meal of the New Covenant. And the New Covenant, like the Old Covenant, had to be inaugurated through a blood sacrifice. So on the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed. The cup signifies this new covenant through the shedding of the blood of Jesus on the cross. The Lamb of God paying our sin debt to offer to us new life, grace, life in the power of forgiveness. A sacrifice, a gift available to anyone that will receive it and believe it and walk in it. First Baptist Church welcomes all who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to share and participate in the Lord's Supper with us. So we're going to take just a few moments as Anna plays to prepare our hearts to examine ourselves. During that time, I'd invite you to confess, to repent of your sin. I'd invite you to ask for and receive forgiveness from God. I would encourage you and ask you to renew your commitment to Jesus Christ for today and for this year. This is an important time of pause, an important breath that we take. So let us receive the bread. Let us receive the cup today with clean hands and a pure heart and the grace and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone doesn't have a, an element cup in front of them at this time, would you raise your hand? And, and we've got them all over, but just want to make sure that they're in your area. They're in the pews right before you. Everyone have that? 
Everyone have one? There's some right here. Okay. As Anna leads us over these next minutes, let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.